I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast, a podcast that's been called, quote, easily 10 times more useful than my MBA, which probably says more about higher education than our pod, but it was a nice review. We're going to start sending the pod along with some deeper content each week. So if you're a power listener of Idea to Startup, head to gettacklebox.beehive.com or the link in the show notes. Beehive is spelled a bit wildly. So it's gettacklebox.beehive.com. On to it. Today, we're going to talk through the four characteristics of great startup ideas. The hope is that this episode does two things. First, if you're deciding between a couple of ideas, you can pattern match a bit and see which is worth over-investing in. And second, if you don't have an idea, you should have one by the end of the pod. It'll be hard not to. We'll start with the personal Venn diagram, then we'll listen to some jazz, then we'll hit the four characteristics of great startup ideas with a bonus fifth I thought of after writing out the first four. Then you'll have a bunch of new ideas or twists on your old ones. I'll actually guarantee you've got some new ideas by then. We dug into some fun markets, and that'll definitely get you thinking. Now, it's July. You're hot. You're probably on vacation. I've got a head cold. No reason to dilly-dally. Good? Good. Let's get to it. The personal Venn diagram. The best way to come up with ideas is to look in the mirror. This might sound a bit odd because all I do is preach customer, 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 and then tell you that the answer to every question you've got is out there and not in your head. But the mirror is where it all has to start, specifically with your personal Venn diagram. Any talk of startup ideas, which we'll get to after the jazz, needs to start here. We've talked about your personal Venn diagram before. In short, it's a bunch of circles that make up you, your skills, your networks, your experience. The size of each circle is the size of your relative excellence at that thing. So if you play piano, that is a small circle because lots of people play piano. But if you played at Juilliard, the circle is much bigger. If you won the Van Cliburn, the circle is huge. Your best startup idea, the one you've been subconsciously preparing to start for years, exists in the middle of your biggest circles. But if you do the Venn diagram exercise and you realize you've only got a bunch of small circles, don't worry. The magic really happens when you combine them. Combination amplifies. So if you worked at a catering and events company and you worked in HR, even if you were league average at both, you'd be incredibly well qualified to recognize and start a company that helps businesses that have, say, recently switched to remote work, run offsites that help their employees meet each other. You'd be able to speak to how to run the events and you'd be able to navigate the metrics companies use to talk turnover. You'd know the types of company-wide initiatives meant to create deeper relationships and stronger camaraderie. You'd know what companies spend on and why. And maybe most importantly, you'd have a nice little knowledge moat. It's unlikely many people have catering and HR experience, so you'd know stuff a competitor would have to learn. Even cursory insight into each market is a superpower. You might even know that the food people bond over the most is cheese. So you'd make that the centerpiece and name your company. Don't mind if I fondue, just spitballing. Did I use the HR and catering example solely so that I could make the don't mind if I fondue joke? You'll never know. Anyway, this is why so many of our best entrepreneurs look like they were wandering around for years, bouncing from job to job, majoring in history, and then working at a jungle cruise company, then a marketing agency, then selling knives door to door before pulling what they learned together into something different. And that is the exact background of one of our most successful founders, if you were wondering. 
The point is that the whole startup thing is about finding secrets that matter, and secrets come from unique combinations. It goes back to our creativity episode from a few weeks back. Paul Graham said something I am incredibly jealous I didn't think of. Quote, a startup is a group of people organized around a secret. Venn diagrams help you find a secret you might be well positioned to execute on. Then your job is to jump into the space and wiggle around until you end up at the right place to start. In our HR friend making fondue's case, it would be finding the type of company disproportionately impacted by not having company events. Companies where an event might produce something tangible and metric driving. Influential companies that, once they ran an event, other companies would have to also. And it'd start from speaking with customers to understand what they viewed as success, where the budget came from, the entire decision-making unit, and on and on. Venn diagrams aren't the end. They're a place to start. But they stack the deck in your favor from day one. Nearly every founder that's been successful that we've worked with can point to the combination of their experiences as to why their business is working. But as I looked around at all the companies that have been successful going through Tacklebox, a few other things jumped out that might be useful for spurring ideas for you. It ended up as a nice little list, and we'll get to them after a little smooth jazz. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job and want to test out the former before you leave the latter, come and work with us. Apply at gettacklebox.com. Over 400 startups have tested and built ideas through our program, and those businesses are now collectively worth over a billion dollars. Our program helps you prioritize and execute, and our members and me and the team keep you accountable and give you feedback along the way. Come build with us at gettacklebox.com. Back to it. The four characteristics of great startup ideas, plus a bonus fifth. We've got a database at Tacklebox of the 500 or so startups we've worked with, along with notes about what's worked disproportionately well for each of them. Every quarter or so, I scroll through and I update the list. And that is where today's pod came from. The more I work with startups, the more the successful ideas coalesce around a few big pillars. Today, we're going to talk through four of them, plus that bonus fifth. The first is the potential for organic growth. Second is prioritizing market innovation over product innovation. The third is prioritizing a growing market with a deep dive on the types of growing markets that exist and a few examples of my current favorite growing markets. Fourth is the swap, the difference between current and future state. And the fifth bonus characteristic is your happiness and more importantly, a way to think about it. Let's dig in. The first characteristic of a great startup idea is an idea with the potential for early organic growth. We talked about this at length in last week's pod, and the more I think about it and get email responses about it, the more important I realize it is. If you don't get organic growth early on, your business probably isn't going to get any growth at all. People need to be so excited you exist that they just need to tell their friends who are hopefully also potential customers. If your first customers aren't driven to talk, or if they don't know anyone else who would care, or if they don't have a good time where they would naturally talk about your product, or if the product is too complicated to explain, you're not going to grow organically, which means, again, you aren't going to grow. I'm so bought in on organic growth that some of our earliest conversations with our newest startups, even at the idea stage, are about the moments that organic growth could occur. Here is an example. A startup applied the other day with an idea for sustainably made fake plants. So like a fig tree made out of recycled materials that looks like a giant, beautiful fig. But obviously it doesn't die when I forget to water it like poor Thelma who ended up on the curb for garbage day last week. Louise was heartbroken. 
Organic growth moments for fake fig trees happen when people come over to your house and see them and love them and remember to get their own. They happen when an interior designer knows about your product and suggests them as ways to create a better chi in a client's living room. And they happen on Zoom, which was the big idea for our founder. At the beginning of every Zoom call, she said, there are two minutes when people are joining that are wildly awkward. People tend to talk about the weather or people's Zoom backgrounds. If you happen to have a big, beautiful fig tree, it would get mentioned. There was a chance that each Zoom call ended in a new faux fig sale. So building and testing around that moment is as good a strategy as there is early on to see if the idea is viable, see if it's got growth potential. Seeding 15 of your friends with fake fig trees and checking in to see if their coworkers mention them on Zoom is a great early organic growth test, especially if they ask for the brand and the price. Paid growth is too expensive. You need a product people are going to share naturally. So as you think through ideas and earlier customers, think through the moments that would lead to organic growth. They need to be choreographed or they aren't going to happen and they need to be possible. The second characteristic of an idea with potential is prioritizing market innovation over product innovation. What this means is that product innovation, something technically difficult where your moat or the reason you're able to stave off competitors is the product, has never worked anywhere near as well as market innovation, which is more just saying, hey, you know that thing that exists over there? Let's slightly modify it and bring it over here. This tends to be a bummer for some entrepreneurs because our instincts are always to build something totally new. But new product is unnecessarily and cripplingly risky. Significantly riskier than new market for a number of reasons. The simplest is that if your complexity is the product, you've got double risk right off the bat. Risk that you can build something that works and risk that the customer cares about it. I love removing that first risk and our best founders have always done it. Probably our most successful Tacklebox alum is Deepak Chugani, who runs Nuvo Cargo. It is a freight forwarding company, software that handles shipping logistics from Mexico to the U.S. The product, while extremely well built, is nothing new. There's a company called Flexport that built the product playbook for China to U.S. shipping, and Nuvo Cargo just sort of followed along. The real innovation is the market, understanding the nuances of what each side of the Mexico to U.S. marketplace wants and needs, what they're motivated by, why they don't have a solution now, and what would help them try something new. This was a people problem, not a product problem. Isolate your risk and innovation to the customer. That is where you're way more likely to find an advantage, to find a secret. The third characteristic of a great startup idea is prioritizing around a growing market. This one has some meat on it. This is probably the most important one on the list, aside from maybe the bonus number five. Always build in a growing market, not a shrinking one even if it seems like there's an opportunity in a shrinking or stagnant one that you could capitalize on. I think of startups like real estate. I was out in the North Fork of Long Island the other day, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. You're on the ocean, the towns are gorgeous, there are vineyards and farms and restaurants and still a bunch of wild space. It's great. A small plot of land there goes for an enormous amount of money because it's a wonderful place to live, obviously. Startups are the same, but we really think of them that way. If you grab a plot of land in a growing industry, the value of that plot of land is likely going to go up. You'll ride a wave that'll bring money and potential hires and potential customers and everything is going to become easier. 
There will be more competitors, but that's a small price to pay. And if you do everything else right, if you find the middle of a Venn diagram, you should be able to hold your space. The conditions of the market are going to create momentum for you rather than relying on you to do it all on your own. The other side of that coin is building in a declining or stagnant market. Do you know how great a house has to be for someone to get excited about it, to overpay for it, even if it's in a crummy town? You're probably with me on the analogy, but a quote, growing market isn't exactly clear. Does that just mean AI or whatever is hyped at the moment? Absolutely not. I think of market growth and momentum in four buckets. First, the hype-driven markets that I just mentioned. These are anchored by excitement and unmet potential and land grabs. This is ChatGPT. This is NFTs last year. This is Tamagotchis in 2002. I do not play in hype-driven markets. There's always potential, but it's usually not evaluated rationally. It's just not for me. What is interesting about hype-driven markets is to grab the tech or whatever is fueling that growth and apply it somewhere you've got a secret. AI applied to, say, chronic pain for people with head injuries, if you've got a unique perspective on that, could be useful. If you are going the AI for X route, remember that your viability is solely dependent on how rare and unknown your knowledge of the X in that equation is, because the AI part of it is a commodity, and you are not going to win on that. The second type of growth market is what I call the, quote, dig out of a hole market. These are my absolute favorites. I love them so much that I keep a running journal of all the opportunities. Here is my current list. I'll link to sources in the show notes. First, nursing. There are 3 million nurses in the U.S. To keep up with demand, we need about 50,000 new nurses per year. But 100,000 nurses left the field after 2020 with, quote, stress due to understaffing as the core reason. The average age of a nurse is 52 whereas the average age of an American worker is 40. And if you were hoping that nursing schools were going to churn out new nurses to cover that gap, nursing schools are facing such a big labor shortage that they had to decline 91,000 qualified applicants due to lack of staff. Then, if you combine this data with our country's aging data, and holy crap, there is a care tsunami hitting the U.S. We will need way more caregivers than we have. That is an opportunity. Number two, agriculture. 11% of total U.S. employment is related to agriculture and food. Yet, for every two agriculture jobs, there is one applicant. The number of ag jobs are growing and the number of applicants for those jobs is shrinking. And food is pretty important, I've heard. Number three, skilled trades. Each year, 10,000 electricians retire and 7,000 join the industry. A 2020 report predicted a shortage of 642,000 auto and diesel and collision technicians by 2024. Another study forecasted a shortage of 557,000 plumbers by 2027. There is a massive labor shortage coming driven by a generational shift away from that type of work. Anecdotally, it took me a month to get a plumber, two months to get an electrician, and three months to get someone to fix my AC. There are shortages in other markets too. There are child therapist shortages and addiction specialist shortages, and the need for each is skyrocketing. These can feel intimidating, but they shouldn't. Let's say the elder care thing spoke to you. As always, start with the customer. Maybe you begin with elderly who will need companionship, 
Maybe you start by interviewing 100 nurses and seeing what tasks they currently do that don't need to be done by a nurse are. Or maybe you start with your Venn diagram. Maybe you worked at an ed tech company and you want to figure out a way to cover the 91,000 qualified applicant gap. Reach out to some nursing schools, speak with their faculty and staff, and start understanding the micro and macro problems, the dams in the river. Everything you need is out there. Plenty of people less talented than you have figured it out. It just takes pressure and time. The we've dug ourselves a hole and the fundamentals don't work markets are ripe. The third type of market is simply what I call momentum markets. They've captured the zeitgeist for whatever reason. Work from home and everything around that. Self-care, side businesses, people moving to places they didn't move to in the past, people renting things they used to own. You know these and there is no need to dig in. Places the culture is moving towards. Keep in mind, everyone else is headed there too. Your Venn diagram becomes even more important. The fourth type of market is what I think of as subsidized growth. This is solar, climate tech, and on and on. The White House and HHS recently launched the Health Sector Climate Pledge, a commitment to climate resilience that includes cutting greenhouse gas emissions by 50% by 2030. One way to do this, it seems, is solar and wind. Both are being heavily subsidized and businesses focusing on them are being invested in. These markets will grow. The government says so. That is a good place to be. The biggest thing a growing market does is erase mistakes. If you're building a house in the middle of nowhere with no roads or town or parks or beaches, if you want someone to move there, that house better be perfect. If you're in the North Fork, an empty plot of land will do. The fourth characteristic of a great startup idea, and the last one on the list before the bonus, is what I call the swap. There's a startup idea that I've loved for a while now. It is centered on the idea that most meetings at big businesses are a waste of time. Or could at least be thought of differently. When I worked in corporate venture capital, admittedly a little while ago, but I'm told things haven't changed, our meetings were either 30 minutes, an hour, or two hours. Lots of these meetings were set, weekly check-ins. For the a la carte meetings, the organizer was always worried about leaving someone out, so they'd invite everyone who might be even remotely tangentially related. Then the people who were invited always felt bad declining the invite because it was insulting, so they showed up. We'd end up with hour-long meetings with nine people that could have been an email and definitely could have been a 20-minute catch-up between the three critical team members. When you start adding up these hours, the numbers are staggering. A nine-person hour-long meeting with a manager or two is probably costing the company around $2,000 in hourly salary. Did the meeting create enough value to cover that? I can confidently say no in most cases. So the idea was a tool that hooked into your calendar and showed in bright, bold numbers how much money you were adding to a meeting by adding each attendee. Then after the meeting, an email goes out. Did this meeting generate X dollars of value? The point was to contextualize the whole thing. This came after a startup in Tacklebox built a system for restaurants to teach everyone in their house, from busboy to sous chef, how the restaurant made money, where the profit drivers were, where the losses came from. The restaurants that adopted this methodology immediately became way more profitable. So I took this idea to a bunch of companies after successful interviews where people said they had too many meetings and meetings killed productivity. And if there was one thing they could fundamentally change about their business, it would be getting rid of 80% of the meetings. You've never heard me talk about this idea, so you know it didn't work. But what happened? Basically, the swap made no sense. 
My hope was that this would swap meetings that didn't have a clear dollar amount assigned to them with meetings that did, and this would change behavior around who people invited, around the meetings being scheduled in the first place. But it didn't. It was an extremely easy MVP to build, and we got a no-code version up for a few companies to beta test. After a few weeks, everyone stopped using it, and no one was interested in paying for it. Why? One manager for a company that beta tested responded, frankly, quote, well, we don't measure things in hourly amounts. No one has any idea what anyone else makes hourly, and most meetings don't tie to a dollar amount. That is not the ROI that we're going to track. So people just started ignoring the numbers in the corner of your meeting invite. When I asked if it decreased the number of meetings or the people involved, he gave an absolute nope. Your customer won't change for a new product. They won't change their workflow, the metrics they track, the way they think. The swap needs to line up identically. Ideas that require cognitive overhead, in my case, for companies to start changing the way they think about time to hourly dollar increments, is not going to work. Remember iced coffee. Pick a customer that's already out trying to find iced coffee, then convince them that yours is better for their iced coffee needs. Don't tell someone getting iced coffee that coffee is actually dehydrating and they should buy your coconut water. That ain't going to work. The idea needs to fit cleanly into a behavior swap. And finally, a bonus fifth one that's about you. You should have excitement, genuine excitement about what you're building. Here is a quote from James Clear that I love. Excitement is a better motivator than discipline. The people who appear to have an exceptional work ethic or remarkable discipline are often those with a genuine curiosity or interest in that area. The person who smiles is more likely to keep working than the person gritting their teeth. But this then begs the question, how do you know what excites you? Most people go about answering this question wrong. I played basketball in college, and shortly after college, my plan was to play overseas in Europe for a few years before officially starting whatever post-college life would be. An injury kept me from doing that, and it landed me on my parents' couch with no job prospects as all my friends started the careers they'd been planning their senior year of college. I remember telling my dad that I didn't want to do anything except play basketball. It was, quote, the only thing that made me happy. His response was that I had no idea what made me happy. I knew what had made me happy in the past, but I had no idea what could make me happy in the future and couldn't possibly know until I tried. Maybe being a chef would make me way happier than being a basketball player ever had. Looking at things that made you happy in the past and trying to recreate them in the future is usually wasted time. There are way more things that'll make you happier or excited, and you just haven't stumbled across them yet. Our best and happiest and most motivated entrepreneurs were the ones that tried lots of things. The successful ones realize that excitement and happiness are more unknown than known, that the iron gets hot by you striking it, that you aren't suddenly enamored with something. Momentum leads to excitement. So trying something new, making progress, that is the only way to know if it'll actually excite you and make you happy. If you've got an idea, see how it stacks up against the criteria we just spoke through. And if you're interested in having fondue at your next corporate event, please do reach out. Don't mind if I fondue is open for orders and you could be dipping various things in cheese by the weekend. This was the idea to start a podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you have a startup idea and a full-time job, apply at gettacklebox.com. We'll get back to you in 72 hours and be working on your idea by the weekend. Have a great week. 